emotions like happiness, they come and go. You can have something that brings you a certain amount of happiness, a thing, a relationship, something that brings you happiness, but that thing, whatever it is, is temporary. I mean, you may have it for a long time, you may not, but eventually you're going to have to deal with the fact that that emotion will leave. That's why we are seeking not happiness, not an emotion, we are seeking joy because joy, it's not a warm, fuzzy feeling. It's not based on emotion or circumstances. It's true joy is based on Christ who's eternal. That emotion like happiness, that's temporary. It's based on circumstances, but true joy is based on Jesus who is not temporary. He is eternal. That's why we're in this series called a Joyride. We're looking at how we can discover and maintain joy in our lives. We're going to review for just a few minutes. We're going to look at the definition of joy that we've been using, Rick Warren's definition. He says that joy is the settled assurance that God is in control of all of the details of my life, the quiet confidence that ultimately everything is going to be okay because my life is in his hands, And because of that, I'm going to make the determined choice to praise God in every situation. Regardless of the circumstances of my life, I know one of the keys to maintaining joy is praising God in any and every circumstance, every situation. Joy is true contentment that comes from our faith in Christ. That is the only source of true joy. It's faith in Jesus Christ. An emotion like happiness comes and goes. But joy is based on Jesus, who's eternal. God's people should be described by many things, but one of those things should be that we are people of joy. If you look at the Bible, you'll see a form of the word joy, rejoicing, something like that over 300 times. In the book of Philippians alone, you see the words joy, rejoice, and joyful 16 different times. And as we've pointed out, This is the theme of the letter. Paul is in prison, and he has a special relationship with the Philippians. He's worried that they're going to lose their joy, that they are losing their joy because he's in prison. So he's writing them this letter, encouraging them, hey, you can still be joyful even in the midst of persecution, even though I'm in prison. He's encouraging them to keep their joy. The reality is, as I said, we should be the most joyful people, and the reason is because we've received, have access to grace and peace from God, grace from above and peace from within. Grace is something that comes to us that we don't deserve. Peace is something that happens within us that's not dependent in any way on our circumstances, what's going on in our lives. And with grace from above and peace from within, we should be the most joyful people in the world. Sometimes that's true. A lot of times that's not true. We know that because of what Jesus did for us, his death, his burial, his resurrection, we know that we have access to joy. We have access to God. We have access to joy. We also know, based on what we've learned so far, that joy is not something that's going to happen automatically. We should be joyful. We have access to joy because of salvation, which reminds us of the truth that without salvation, no salvation, no joy. You cannot have joy without salvation. But if you know salvation, if you've experienced salvation through Christ alone, you can know joy. But it's not automatic. It's something that we have to choose. 
John Piper says we have to fight for joy. And that's true. Every day there are going to be things that try to steal your joy. We have to fight for joy. We have to choose joy. It's not going to just happen automatically. Yes, we have access to joy because of our relationship with Christ, but we have to choose it. Joy is available because of salvation. My prayer in this series is that we will accomplish two things. Number one is that you will experience a joy-filled life, that you will experience true joy in your life. Number two is that we will share that joy with others, encouraging them to experience joy. If we pick up where we left off last week, the end of chapter 2, we see Paul is sending Timothy and Epaphroditus to the Philippians. He's still in jail, so he's sending Timothy. He knows that Timothy will minister to them in a way that, that he should, in a way that Paul would. And so he's sending Timothy to the Philippians to minister in his place. If you'll remember, Epaphroditus was the, the member of the church who brought Paul money. The Philippians were supporting him throughout his ministry, especially while he was in prison. Epaphroditus brings him some money from the Philippian church. Somewhere along the way, he gets sick. He almost dies, but now he's doing better and ready to make the trip back. So he's sending Epaphroditus with Timothy back to the Philippian church. He's ministered to Paul. You know, one of the amazing things about Epaphroditus, he's a lay person just like you. We wouldn't know anything about him if it weren't for the fact that Paul mentioned him. And the reason Paul mentions him is because of his faithfulness that he had ministered to Paul. And now he's sending him back to the Philippian church primarily to deliver this letter that you and I are studying. But this, this section at the end of chapter 2 is basically Paul vouching for these two guys. These guys are trusted. Greet them with the same warm affection that you've shown me. That's essentially what he's saying. Then we come to chapter 3, verse 1. Pick up with me in chapter 3. Finally, my brothers... Rejoice in the Lord. To write to you again about this is no trouble for me and is a protection for you. Watch out for dogs. That word dogs, when you think of dogs, don't think of your warm, cuddly pet at home. They were not house pets in this day and time. They were filthy scavengers. The word actually means here used, that's, that's used means dirty scavengers. That's the, that's the mindset, the picture that Paul wants to produce in their minds and in ours. Watch out for evil workers. Watch out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision, the ones who serve by the Spirit of God, boast in Christ Jesus, and do not put confidence in the flesh. Although I once also had confidence in the flesh, if anyone thinks he has grounds for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews. He's describing his credentials, what he was before conversion. Regarding the law of Pharisee, regarding zeal, persecuting the church, regarding the righteousness that is in the law, blameless. He followed the law. But everything that was a gain to me, I have considered to be a loss because of Christ. More than that, I also consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Because of him, I have suffered the loss of all things and consider them filth so that I may gain Christ. And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own from the law. He tried that, it didn't work. But one that is through faith in Christ. True righteousness comes from Christ. The righteousness from God based on faith. Not on anything I've done, but on faith in Christ. My goal is to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. To be conformed to his death, assuming 
that I will somehow reach the resurrection from among the dead. Our default state as Christians should be joy. That should be our default state. We should be defined by joy. Paul reminds the Philippians and us of that over and over and over again. What he's doing particularly in this passage, we've talked about him. He spends more time here. He's warning the Philippians, warning us about joy stealers, things that, that creep into our lives that Satan tries to use to steal our joy. Because again, joy is a choice. We have to choose joy. Joy is something that if we don't use, if we don't tap into, we can lose. Can't lose your salvation, but you can lose joy. And so Paul's warning them about joy stealers. In chapter 3, we've already talked about worry, stress, fear, grumbling, disputing, those joy stealers. In chapter 3, Paul talks about a new set of joy stealers he calls dogs. And these dogs attempt to steal joy by either adding to grace or replacing grace with different laws, additional laws, things that you have to do to attempt to earn your salvation or maintain your salvation, which defies grace in and of itself. So what is God saying through Paul here? He is saying, beware of these dogs. Beware of the dogs, of legalism. So first, in watching out, we need to watch out for their bark. Like any dog, these dogs bark, and their bark is intimidating. Again, I think of a dog, I think of our pet. Warm, cuddly, friendly, that's what we think of when we think of dogs. In biblical times, dogs were disease-ridden scavengers that would run in packs throughout the city streets, and you had to stay away from them. If you got bit by one of these dogs, you were going to catch whatever disease they had. And so dogs were not pets. They were not considered friendly. They were considered dirty. They were considered disease-ridden because they were. And so you wanted to stay away from these dogs. You didn't want anything to do with these dogs. And Paul is warning them about a different kind of dog, the dogs of legalism. The real issue Paul is addressing here is legalism, which is another joy stealer. Let's look at a definition for legalism. It is dependence on moral law rather than faith in Christ. It is saying in order to be righteous, you have to do this, this, and this. In order to attain salvation, you have to do this, this, and this. In order to keep your salvation, you have to do this, this, and this. It is faith in my ability to follow the law instead of depending on Christ, the grace that he gives for salvation. Legalism sounds good. I mean, think about it. It massages the ego. The more good things I do, the better I look. Paul talked about that. As far as being righteous, he was the best. As far as doing the right things, he was one of the best. When I do good things, it draws attention. It makes me feel good when I do good things. It sounds reasonable and religious on the surface. I mean, we should all do good things. I mean, it's good to do good, isn't it? It's good to do good things. And so it sounds reasonable. Well, it makes sense that if I do enough good things that I will be good. And that, that, that all appeals to this desire to be good, this desire to be righteous that's built into us. Here's the problem, though. Legalism intimidates without actually dealing with sin. It's like that dog, and you've all seen or maybe had one of these dogs that barks at every little movement, unexpected movement. It's usually a really small dog that couldn't do anything about whatever was going on if it wanted to. It's like that dog that barks at everything that it sees and hears, but isn't about to actually do anything about the problem. That's legalism. It, it, it points out that we are not good enough, 
And, and it makes a lot of noise, but legalism doesn't actually address the problem that, that makes us unacceptable, that makes us not good enough. Legalism doesn't address the problem of sin. It produces, though, a false confidence in the flesh. Samuel Gender once said in the Washington Post, if moral behavior were simply following rules, then we could program a computer to be moral. Legalism, it is following rules. It could be considered moral behavior, but it doesn't make you morally righteous. If that were the case, then all we'd have to do is to prescribe a set of rules and go by it. The law was never meant to do that. The law was meant to show our need for salvation and the standard of God, which we can never meet on our own. Legalism appeals to guilt also. The message of the legalist leaves you lacking, wanting something more, feeling like you need to do something else. You do and you do and you do, but it's never enough. You never can do enough. You can never be good enough. It never brings relief. It's unresolved guilt, and that guilt begins to cry out. For something to be done. We see this in Psalm chapter 32. David talking about when he was dealing with his unconfessed sin. He says in verse 3. When I kept silent or when I refused to confess my sin. My bones became brittle from my groaning all day long. And that's the idea. In guilt we groan for relief. We groan for forgiveness. And legalism feeds that cry temporarily. It gives you something to do following rules that makes you feel better for a short time, but ultimately that good feeling is going to wear off and you've got to do more and you've got to do more in order to feel good again about yourself because there's always that guilt that exists. If you don't know Christ, that guilt is there and there's nothing you can do to push it away. You can never do enough good things. You can never be good enough. Legalism doesn't deal with the problem of sin. The legalist bark is loud, sounds good, but it isn't. And if you think the legalist bark is loud, watch out for their bite. You've heard the phrase, the bark's worse than the the bite. That's not true with legalism. The bite is just as bad. It's brutal. The biggest problem with legalism is that it completely rejects grace. It completely rejects grace. Again, grace is something that comes to me. It is a gift That I do not deserve. You cannot earn a gift. A gift is a gift. There's nothing I can do to earn a gift. Look at what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2. Verse 8. God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you cannot take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Speaking to grace. It's a gift. Salvation is not a reward for the good things that we've done. So none of us can boast about it. Salvation is by grace through faith. It's nothing we do to earn it. So we can't boast about it. Legalism gives you a reason to boast. For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew with Christ so we can do the good things planned for us long ago. Legalism reverses that. This says grace saves me, then I do good works as a result of salvation. I'm able to do good things. Legalism says do these good things and then you'll be righteous. But that's not how God works. That's not how salvation works. Legalism turns turns faith in the power of redemption, Jesus paying for me, saving me, faith in the power of redemption into faith in the power of a resume. It's you got to do enough good things, but again, you can't do enough. As Christians, when it comes to our vertical and eternal relationship with Christ, unlike 
the humanist message, we have no confidence in the flesh. That's what Paul's saying. It is by grace through faith so that no man can boast. We don't have any confidence in ourselves. We know we're not good enough. There's no pride involved here because we've already tried all that and failed, just like Paul had. We know there's nothing in us or nothing we can do to make us acceptable. It's not about human works. The gift of salvation is just that, is a gift of grace. And if we want joy, the only way to receive joy is to accept that gift and to recognize there's nothing we can do to earn that gift. It's based on what Jesus has done not on anything that we have done. If we rely on what we have done and not the gift of grace, then all that's going to do is produce guilt and more guilt. We'll be riddled with guilt and there'll be no remedy for guilt. You may feel good temporarily, follow these rules, you'll feel good, but that's going to wear off. It only produces more guilt. Legalism reinforces guilt. And here's some things that guilt causes. I mean, guilt is bad enough, but guilt causes other negative things in your life. A guilt causes anxiety. You know something's not right. And you're, you're anxious. You're uneasy about your life. You know. And you're trying all these things and it's just not working. Guilt causes anxiety. It causes a drain of energy. If you're carrying guilt around all the time, it drains. It takes a lot of energy to maintain guilt. And then put on top of just dealing with guilt, all the things you're doing to try to get rid of guilt and it's not working. I mean, you just, you're zapped. You have no energy for anything else. Self-punishment is another effect of guilt. I'm doing all these things. I'm trying to get rid of it. I can't get rid of my guilt. And so I begin to beat myself up. And there's something you've done to cause that guilt. But God doesn't want you to beat yourself up. He wants you to accept his remedy for guilt. But guilt causes us to punish ourselves. It causes insecurity. Again, I know something's not right in my life. I know I'm guilty and I, I can't do anything about it. And then I begin, begin to, to get insecure about other areas. If I know I'm guilty over here, then if somebody, if it appears somebody's accusing me of something else, instead of responding rationally, I become insincere and respond irrationally because I'm, I know there's something that you don't know about over here that I'm guilty of. It causes insecurity. It causes a running of overactivity. And that's just simply, it's legalism. We're trying to compensate, overcompensate for the guilt that we know we have. We try to do other things that we know are good to try to cover up the guilt that we have. It causes hindered prayer. If you're a child of God, if you have unconfessed sin in your life, then, then God is not going to do something new in your life until you do what he's already told you to do, and that is get rid of that that unconfessed sin, that guilt, it will hinder your ability to communicate with God. It hinders your prayer life, and it results in fruitlessness. You will not be bearing fruit. You'll not be growing in your faith, becoming like Christ. You know, several years ago, there's a funny story I found. I've, I've kept it. There's a lady that was a tourist in Beverly Hills, and she went into an ice cream shop called the Thrifty Store, and she was ordering ice cream, and, and frequently in Beverly Hills, well-known people, famous people would come in, and she was standing in line ordering her ice cream, and she turned around and noticed Paul Newman was standing in line behind her, and she was amazed by that. 
she was determined, being a tourist, she was determined, I'm not going to make a fool of myself. I'm going to keep my cool. I'm going to order my ice cream. I'm not going to slobber all over this guy. I'm going to get out of the way and keep my composure. Well, she did. She ordered her ice cream. They handed it to her, and she paid for her ice cream and walked outside without saying a word. And she got outside and realized she didn't have her ice cream cone. And she thought, well, okay, I had to have left it inside, so she waited. It was real crowded, but she waited a little while, and it looked like the coast was clear. So she went back inside. For all she could tell, Newman was gone. She went back inside, and you know the little round receptacles they put your cones in? She looked, and her cone wasn't in there. And she thought, what in the world? Somebody must have gotten my cone. About that time, she felt a tap on her shoulder. Turned around, sure enough, it was Paul Newman. He said, Miss, I don't know if you're looking for your ice cream cone, you put it in your purse. (laughs) So all that effort to try to maintain her cool just went out the window. I'm sure she had a nice big mess and her pride, of course, was damaged. It just goes to show you it doesn't matter how hard we try, we'll never be perfect. I mean, we've all got embarrassing stories. We've tried to do something and it just didn't work out or we just fell flat on our face, literally or figuratively, in some situation. That legalism flies in the face of grace. Legalism says if you do enough, you'll be good enough. But those of us who are human beings know that, that we'll never be perfect. And that's God's standard. God's standard is perfection. And we can't reach that on our own. That's the bite of legalism. It's dependent upon what I can do and I can never do enough. I can never be good enough. And that is a heavy, heavy weight to carry around. And that's when we're dealing with legalists, we need to watch out for the burden that they give us. The bottom line in relation to this series, bottom line, is that legalism robs your joy. Legalism is going to steal your joy. And one of the great byproducts of joy is contentment. So if you don't have joy, you're not going to have contentment. Legalism makes you discontented because there's always something else you have to do. In fact, we've said that joy itself is true contentment that comes from our faith in Christ. Not our works, our faith in Christ. So lack of joy means lack of contentment. And no wonder they call him Savior. Max Lucado talks about the lack of contentment among people. He says this. Let me read just a little bit from that book. It says, in our world, contentment is, stra- is a strange street vendor roaming, looking for a home, but seldom finding an open door. Contentment moves slowly from house to house, knocking on doors, offering his wares, an hour of peace, a smile of acceptance, a sigh of relief, but his goods are seldom taken. We are too busy to be content. Not now. Thank you. I have too much to do, we say. Too many marks to be made. Too many achievements to be achieved. So the vendor moves on. And when I asked him why so few welcomed him into their homes, his answer left me convicted. I charge a high price, you know. My fee is steep. I ask people to trade in their schedules, their frustrations, and their anxieties. I demand that they put a torch to their 14-hour days and their sleepless nights. You'd think I'd have more buyers, he said. But he scratched his beard and added, added pensively, But people seem strangely proud of their ulcers and their headaches. You know, the issue of accepting joy and contentment is really an issue of lordship. It's an issue of who calls the shots in my life. Do I want to maintain control, which many people do, and that's what Lucado was speaking about. 
Or am I willing to submit to the Lord Jesus Christ and allow him, get in that yoke with him like we talked about last week and let him provide the strength and the direction. Learn from him. Let him call the shots in my life. Am I willing to accept his control? The motto of the day is basically I control my own destiny. I I make my path. But Jesus says you get in my yoke and I call the shots. I control your destiny. Your life belongs to me. And so we have to submit. Legalism, though, carries with it that burden of trying to do things yourself, trying to control things yourself. No matter how much you do, it's never enough, though. And no matter how good you are, you're never good enough. What you end up with is bondage to do rather than freedom to become. Bondage to do this, 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 and this rather than freedom to become what God intends for you to be in the first place. His creation. To become what He wants you to be to fulfill His purpose for your life. Grace, acceptance of grace and faith in Christ frees you to do what He wants you to do. Not to do whatever you want, but to do what He wants. I want to share with you some of the popular self-help books titles from recent years. Some of them, I was going to use some more, ti- more recent titles, but they were just so filthy. Some of the language that was in some of these self-help titles, I just I couldn't, obviously couldn't do it. But here are some that, that I've, I've collected over the years. A few titles, self-help books. Passport to Prosperity was one. Another one, this one is more recent, Awaken the Giant Within. How to Take Control of Your Mental, Emotional, Physical, and Financial Destiny. More. One was titled Winning Moves. True Greed was the title of one self-help book. Here's my favorite probably. probably Leadership Secrets of Attila the Hun. That sounds helpful, doesn't it? Maybe to you, but not to everybody else around you. Here's another one. Winning Through Intimidation. How to Win by Intimidating Others. Cashing in on the American dream, how to retire at 35. Well, I missed that boat. I'm past that now. The art of selfishness. That's a good one, isn't it? Techniques that will take you to the top. How to get what you really want, because that's the goal in life, to get what I want. Secrets to quick success, how to get rich quick. I'm not saying you shouldn't try to improve yourself, and we all should try to be the best we can be. Whether it's an athlete trying to reach the Super Bowl or if it's, if it's, a, if it's parents trying to raise their kids or a man or a woman going, try, attempting to get a Ph.D. or a musician trying to, trying to perfect the skill of whatever musical instrument they're trying to perfect. Those things are, are satisfying. Success is a good thing. But in all of life, it's, it's faith and it is consistency over the long haul. That's the investment that pays off the most. It's living for the Lord day, one day at a time, by His strength and His power. It's not what I can do, it's what He can do through me that really brings contentment and joy. But you cannot do it on your own. You don't have the power. There isn't a self-help book out there that can give you everything you need to be all that God wants you to be. There's just nothing in yourself and myself that can make us good enough. Only Christ can give you the strength that you need that brings, which brings us to the next burden legalism places on us. Legalism robs you of joy because legalism robs you of Jesus. Jesus is the only answer to the guilt, to the craziness, to the busyness, 
to the lack of contentment. Only he can fill that void for you. Legalism says you can do it by doing enough good things, and by doing that, it robs you of the grace and the strength that Jesus provides you because it forces you to depend, to depend on yourself instead of depending on him. Paul understood this. He, I mean, he understood all about this in verses 4 and 11. He knows what he's talking about. He knows firsthand what legalism does. I mean, he was the ultimate high achiever. Before he met Christ, he was a Pharisee. He followed all the laws. He, he was the model Jewish citizen. He was the model Pharisee. He understood the law. He practiced the law. He had great zeal. But what he says is that he found that day on the road to Damascus, he found that all of that before was just garbage. It was vain effort. It was futile. But when Jesus saved him, he showed him a whole new life, a life of grace. At one time in Paul's life, he set records when evaluated by human standards. But what he realized after his conversion on that road to Damascus, what he realized is that by Jesus' standard, all that he had done, it was useless. That he could never do enough. And so what he's saying here is, hey guys, I've lived it. I've experienced it. I, by, by human standards, I was the best of the best. I was the most righteous there was. But by Jesus' standard, it was still, I was still a sinful man. And I would never be good enough. He realized in a moment, his entire frame of reference, his entire outlook on life was changed completely in a moment. He wasn't righteous because of anything that he had done. He was now righteous because of what Jesus did on the cross and because Jesus made him righteous. He discovered a life-changing truth and it's something that you and I, we will never find joy, we will never find contentment unless we all come to this same realization. In life, in death, in eternity, Jesus is all he needed and Jesus is all we need. There's a lot of good things in life. There's joy, there's, there's happiness, there's ups, there's downs. There are a lot of things that God blesses us with in this world, but ultimately, in terms of eternity, all we really need is Jesus. Nothing else is sufficient. Nothing else will satisfy. Nothing else will take the guilt away. Only Christ can provide forgiveness and holiness. In John 14, 6, Jesus said it pretty clear. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. The only way to the Father, the only way to eternal life, the only way to contentment, to joy in life and beyond in eternity is through Christ. And at that moment after conversion, Paul, that was when Paul, he really started to live. It was when he discovered what it meant to have a joy-filled life, not to the, the endless running over effort, the vain effort of trying to measure up by following laws, he realized that all of that was useless. He realized what true joy was because he found the joy that comes from knowing Christ. The rest of his life, he spent wanting to know Christ more intimately, wanting to, to identify with him in sufferings, depending on the resurrection power. That's what he's talking about in these verses, being conformed into the image of Christ. He spent the rest of his life pursuing that instead of pursuing righteousness by works. His legalistic life before robbed him of the most important thing that he needed, and it's what legalism robs everybody that depends on works of, and that is Jesus. He knew he needed Jesus when he met him that day. Legalism robs you of Jesus and joy. Here's the happy ending, though. Once you realize 
that you will never be good enough or do enough good things. Once you realize that Jesus is all you need, you have Jesus and accept his grace, you can win out in the blessings of grace. Once you come to that realization that I can't be good enough, I never will be, all I need is Jesus, he's offering me grace and forgiveness. Once you accept that, you get to experience a life of grace. And there is no greater joy than that, than experiencing a life of grace. Through grace, we get to know Jesus. We're invited into a relationship. Look at verse 8 of chapter 3. More than that, Paul says, I consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Because of him I have suffered the loss of all things and consider them filth. All that that he had done before that he thought was important. It's filth so that I may gain Christ. Ralph Herring uses the atom bomb to describe what happens to Paul here. He says, The force of the atom bomb was not in its physical violence alone, but in the fact that as a new weapon it made all previous methods of warfare obsolete. That's what happens to Paul here. The new power in his life that came by faith through, by, by grace through faith, through receiving Christ, that new power in his life made the old power of legalism obsolete because there never really was any power there to begin with. It replaced, it gave him a new perspective on life. It gave him a, a joy and contentment, grace that he had never experienced. Because of grace, Paul now knows he's saved. Look again at verses 9 through 11. And be found in him, he says, not having a righteousness of my own from the law, but one that is through faith in Christ, a righteousness from God based in faith, on faith. My goal is to know him and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, assuming that I will somehow reach the resurrection from the dead. If you accept Jesus, if you accept Christ, one of the great things is that your past is forgiven. Not only forgiven, it's forgotten. God says he forgets our sins as far as the east is from the west. He forgets, he forgives and he forgets our sins. Your past is forgotten. And in verse 13 of chapter 3, Paul says, I now focus on this one thing, forgetting what is behind, forgetting the past, and looking forward to what lies ahead. That phrase, forgetting the past, is actually an athletic term. It talks, it's really talking about, it's used to talk about a runner in a race who passes another runner. And the idea is that that runner never looks back at the runner he passed. He's so focused on the tape, winning the race, he's forgetting about the runners behind him. He's not focused on them. Paul's talking about running this race of life, finishing the race, which he does. We see the end of second Timothy, we see he finishes the race. He's talking about running this race. He's saying an important factor in doing that is not living in the past. It's focusing on the future that God has for us. Continuing, persevering through whatever life brings. Think about it. What's in the past? I mean, the past we should learn from it. The past is, is a good thing and, and that we, we have joy there. We have good memories, but we also have mistakes, all of which we should learn from. But you have to be careful because there are two things in the past that can cause you trouble. One of those is, is the, are those good memories, those achievements that you've made in the past. The danger there is that you depend on that for, for, for happiness and it produces either pride, arrogance, or you begin to rest on past laurels and you don't do anything in the present or the future. 
The other danger is the mistakes. All of the mistakes we've made, Satan will try to use those to convince you you're not good enough to do anything in the future or the present. You can be so riddled with guilt because of past mistakes that you won't do anything for God in the present. God doesn't want you to do either one of those things. He forgives us of our past. He releases us from our past so that we can focus on the future and doing what he's called us to do. Why in the world would anybody want to live in the past? I mean, recalling all of those those ineffective events of yesterday, it, it just zaps our energy for anything of the future. And living in the guilt of past mistakes just demoralizes us. And here we see another joy stealer, and that is past memories that haunt our minds. There are a lot of people who are ineffective for the Lord today because Satan has convinced them that they're not good enough, that their past disqualifies them. But Jesus says, hey, I'm offering you freedom from that. I'm willing to forgive you and and to forget your past. Few joy stealers are more insidious than those past what-ifs and why-did-I's. What if I had done this? And why did I do that? There are few joy stealers that are more crippling than past failures, past memories. Because of grace, we are saved. We're free from our past, and now we are secure in the present. Look at verse 9 again. The God's Word translation says it this way. And to have a relationship with Him. This means that I didn't receive God's approval by obeying the laws. The opposite is true. I have God's approval through faith in Christ. This is the approval that comes from God and is based on faith. Only by God's grace, which is motivated by love, only because of that are we saved, but we are saved and we are secure. We are sanctified. Look again at what David says in Psalm 32, verse 1. Oh, what joy for those whose disobedience is forgiven, whose sin is put out of sight. Yes, what joy for those whose record the Lord has cleared of guilt, whose lives are lived in complete honesty. When I refuse, here's the verse I quoted a few minutes ago. When I refuse to confess my sin, my body wasted away. I groaned all day long. Day and night, your hand of discipline was heavy on me. It was riddled with guilt. My strength evaporated like water in the summer heat. Finally, I confessed all of my sins to you and stopped trying to hide my guilt. I said to myself, I will confess my rebellion to the Lord and you forgave me. My guilt is now gone. Therefore, let all the godly pray to you while there is still time that they may not drown in the floodwaters of judgment. For you are my hiding place. You protect me from trouble. You surround me with songs of victory, burdened, weighed down by guilt, confession, and then freed from guilt. That's the promise of salvation in Christ. Because of grace, we are saved. We are freed from our past. Our past has been forgotten. Because of grace, we are secure in the present. We are sanctified in Jesus Christ. He makes us righteous. And because of grace, we know we are special to Christ. He created us uniquely. He created us with purpose. He created us. He redeemed us. He made us acceptable to Him to be used by Him, but also to spend eternity with Him. We no longer have to be separated from God. You are special to God. Because of grace, we are free from our past. We are secure in the present, and we can be confident in the future. Now, some of you need to hear that first part again. You're free from your past. Some of you are struggling today with past failures, 
with feeling like you'll never be good enough. Some of you are struggling with this concept of grace and forgiveness. And we need to be reminded that even though our past may be full, and hey, you may have had a parent or somebody that you looked up to tell you your whole life you're not valuable. You may have had someone damage your ego so much that you can't see a way you could possibly be valuable. But I'm here to tell you that you are valuable because Jesus values you. You are special to him. He created you to be you. He wanted a you to be a part of his kingdom. He created you the way you are different from everybody else. And he loves you as you are. He will take you as you are and make you what he wants you to be. We are valuable because Jesus makes us valuable. In Psalm 139, 14, the psalmist says, Thank you for making me wonderfully complex. It's amazing to think about. Your workmanship is marvelous and how well I know it. You are special. God created you special. Plus, he's still working on you. None of us are where we need to be. We're all a work in progress. In verse 14, Paul's trying to reach the end of the race. Even he wasn't finished. He got there eventually, but in this moment, he still had work to do. God still had work to do in him and on him. The analogy is is clear. In this race of life, we are facing forward. We leave the past behind. We're facing forward and allowing God to accomplish his work through us so that he can make us what we need to be. He can accomplish through us what he wants to accomplish. But it's through faith, not works. It's through faith in him and dependence and obedience to him. Dependence on an obedience to him. Making this, this life lived in faith is a life of adventure because it's a life that Jesus has planned for us. Three questions I want you to ask yourself as we finish. Have you left the past? Number one, I mean fully moved on beyond it. Number two, are you making progress in your life? You're not perfect. None of us are perfect. We won't arrive until we've arrived. But are you making progress, some type of deliberate progress in your life spiritually? And do you passionately pursue a dream? Is there something you're passionate about? How many of you have heard the name Robert Ballard? Anybody? Robert Ballard was a man who had a dream. He had a passion. His dream was to find the wreckage of the Titanic. And in 1985, in September, on September the 1st, he, through an expedition, finally located the wreckage of the Titanic 350 miles off the coast of Newfoundland, and he sent the, the, the machinery, the camera, the diving equipment down to view this wreckage for the first time. And when I read his description the first time he sent down that probe to see the Titanic, it was pretty moving. Here's what he said. He said, my first direct view of the Titanic lasted less than two minutes. But the stark sight of her immense black hole towering above the ocean floor will remain forever ingrained in my memory. But listen to this. This was a lifelong dream of his. He said, my lifelong dream was to find this great ship. And during the past 13 years, spent 13 years, the quest for her has dominated my life. First of all, what's your particular mission in life? I think we should all have something we're reaching toward. We've talked about the mission of the church. As as followers of Christ, there should be a mission we're working on working towards. There's something invigorating. There's joy in pursuing something in the, in the future, not living in the past. But you know, as much as I admire what Ballard did, and listen, I'm not taking anything away. He accomplished what he set out to accomplish. I have to wonder, what did he do next? 
His life's mission, 13 years he spent achieving this. Once he achieved it, what did he do next? And maybe he did something, I don't know. I'm just saying anything short of Christ's mission for your life and my life will leave us unsatisfied. Only pursuing Jesus' mission for our lives will find, will, we will find joy and contentment in those things. Two very important lessons from this passage. First, spending your life trusting in your own achievements brings you the glory now but leaves you spiritually bankrupt forever. Second, stopping today and trusting in Christ's accomplishment on the cross will give Him the glory now and will provide you with perfect righteousness forever. Paul, that's what he found out. He found out pursuing righteousness through the law was vain effort. It was all filth. All of those things he considered loss to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus. Through grace, he found contentment. He found meaning. He found purpose in life that he never had before. Saul didn't just go get a new religion and follow a new set of rules. His life was changed. He was radically converted. By the power of Jesus, his whole perspective on life. And that's how he found joy that did not go away, even though he was in prison, chained to a guard. Even though he was persecuted, even though he was beaten within an inch of his life on several occasions, he maintained joy because he maintained Jesus. He had Christ. He had all he needed. And that's the secret. If you want to live a joy-filled life, your value as a person has to be gained from the amount Jesus loves you. And the only way to get a proper perspective on that, on Christ's love for you, the only way to have joy is to be saturated with Jesus. And the only way we do that is we spend time with him. We spend time in his word. We spend time in fellowship with him. We are filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, we receive the Holy Spirit when we're saved, but the Bible talks about being filled daily. And what that's talking about is lordship. It is, I'm submitting to you, Lord. I'm going to obey you. And as I obey you, I'm filled with the Holy Spirit. I'm equipped for service. There's joy and there's satisfaction in that. The only way to have true joy and maintain that joy is to be saturated with Jesus. And I want to see if I can illustrate that for you. I have here... A $5 bill. I was going to use a $10 bill. The, the, the money represents you and me. I was going to use a $10 bill because, hey, everybody's a 10 in Jesus' eyes. But I didn't have a $10 bill, so we're going to be five. We're going to be half of that today. The $5 bill in here represents you and it represents me. This liquid represents being saturated with all of those things that I just talked about, with Christ, his presence in our lives, which becomes more real every day as we saturate ourselves with the word of God. We've got to get the word of God in us. It's, it represents being filled with the Holy Spirit. Yes, the Holy Spirit coming into our lives, but being filled daily as we submit to him, as we obey him. We have to, if we want to have joy, if we want to have a passion for life that's maintained, we've got to be saturated. So we're going to take our dollar bill, our $5 bill that's been saturated, and we're going to pull it out, and I'm going to do something very dangerous. I have checked. We do have fire extinguishers nearby. Here's what happens. When you are saturated with Christ, His Word, the Holy Spirit, you develop a passion for service. You develop joy that comes with that. You become on fire for Christ. What just happened? It went out. So if I want to enjoy, we can lose our joy. We've talked about that. You can lose your passion for Christ. So what do I need to do again? I've got to get back in the Word. I've got to get back, saturate myself with Jesus, saturate myself with the Word, be filled with the Holy Spirit. And once I do that, 
Once I have saturated myself once again, this is a daily process, each and every day, spending time in the Word, spending time with Christ. When I do that, my passion comes back again. But again, it's a daily process over and over and over again. If you want to maintain joy, you have to maintain fellowship with your Savior. True joy is found in Jesus. Not anything that I do, not anything that I can accomplish because I'll never do enough, I'll never be good enough. True joy is found in right relationship, right fellowship with Christ. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for giving us access to joy because of the salvation that you have provided. Thank you for giving us the privilege of having fellowship with you. We know that we can never do enough good things or be good enough to be righteous. That all of that effort will leave us disappointed, filled with guilt because we aren't good enough. It'll leave us exhausted. Legalism robs us of joy because legalism robs us of you, Jesus. We know that the only way we can ever be righteous, the only way we can ever be good enough is is by grace. You give us the gift of eternal life. You give us your presence. You make us righteous. And it's through faith in you that we receive that gift. We can't do enough. We can't earn a gift. We have to receive it. And I just believe that there may be somebody here today in this room that they don't know joy because they don't know you. They haven't received that gift of salvation. And so I pray that they would come today and discover how to be saved during this time of commitment if that's them. For those of us that know you, there may be some here today who are attempting to still earn your favor. We're attempting to be good enough, to do enough good things when the reality is, is we need to focus on submitting to you daily and and giving, give you full control of our lives, to trust you truly as Lord of our lives. And there may be others that are struggling through life and, and Father, they're doing all the right things and, and they're trusting you, but life is difficult. I pray that you would show them what true joy and contentment is in the midst of their difficult circumstances. Wherever we are, Father, I pray that we would evaluate how we view our relationship with you. If we have one, and are we depending on you daily? Are we trusting in your righteousness? Are we trying to achieve righteousness? Lord, May we submit to you totally and completely. And if there are other decisions that need to be made, baptism or church membership, I pray that those will be made in this time of commitment. But Lord, I pray that we would give ourselves to you and submit to you anew in this moment. But whatever you call us to do, may we do, for it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Would you stand for our time of decision?